Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance, and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. Hey, good afternoon, Chris. Hope all well. Um, blistering heat in, here in Dublin. Um, I think it's the same in Wales, isn't it? Yes, it's 31 degrees where I'm sitting at the moment, which is extraordinary for September. But as everybody always says, the kids have gone back to school, so the sunshine comes out. I think I've heard that every year for the past 63 years, Jim. Chris, you have uh, written two pieces on our Substack account um, over the last few days. One is revisiting um, an old love of yours called um, Nobody Knows Anything, Love the Economic Forecast. So you are talking about the, the whole art of economic forecasting. And the second piece you did was on Saturday about um, is lying at the heart of all our ills. And you were quoting a number of... Um, politicians, particularly Boris Johnson, in that context. Um, this morning, I was back teaching in class my um, MBA class in Smurfit Business School, and it was the first time that I got to stand in front of a class since this time last year, effectively. But um, I was giving my introductory lecture on economics to many students who had never studied economics before. And one of the things I always do on this occasion is to point out to them that economics is a social science um, and that forecasting the economic and financial future is nigh on impossible given that it is a social science not a physical science and um, looking at the tone of your piece on nobody knows anything um, I think it certainly resonates with how I view the world tell us about it 
Yeah, it's an old theme of mine. As you rightly point out, Jim, it's something I've written about on several occasions. When I used to be a journalist, a columnist, I devoted many, many a column to forecasting, particularly when agencies like the IMF, the OECD, the Department of Finance in Ireland, the Treasury in the UK would produce their annual or half annual, whatever it is, quarterly set of forecasts and point out that forecasting, economic forecasting is mostly, not entirely, a waste of time. It's easy to do because you just go over past forecasts and show how inaccurate they are and throwing darts at, at a wall of numbers would produce possibly even more accurate forecasts than ones produced by economic models. It's actually one of the reasons why I have a healthy scepticism about modelling people's behaviour generally, which is one of the things that led me to question some of the epidemiological models that have been doing the rounds lately. But that's a topic for another day. The thing that sparked the latest article, latest rant about the perils of forecasting, was an emerging theme amongst forecasters. Much as I might write articles um, saying it's a waste of time, then nobody pays certainly me any attention and forecasting uh, remains a growth industry uh, loads of people do it loads of institutions do it every government does it there seems to be new forecasters popping up almost every day and the latest theme that seems to be populating those forecasts is that horrible word stagflation now this is the idea that there isn't much growth that's the stag bit as in stagnation but inflation is coming through somewhat whimsically tongue-in-cheek, I included a headline about stagflation. But of course, it was from 20 years ago. It was from an edition of The Economist from 2001 that was warning about the perils of stagflation. And I was making the point that uh, these sorts of forecasts need to be treated with a pinch of salt, just as that one was 20 years ago. It never came to pass. Stagflation didn't really hit us in any material way. And then we have The Economist of only this week warning about the perils of stagflation. But there are, that is occurring in lots of reports. I also included a Bloomberg headline warning about the perils of stagflation. And the reason why people are worried about this is twofold. One, it's quite clear that there has been an awful lot of demand unleashed by the lifting of coronavirus restrictions, really. That all of a sudden increase in demand is all over the place met with supply constraints. And that has led to shortages, actual shortages. Think silicon chips for cars, for example. Therefore, the price of these things going up. Uh, one of the world's biggest semiconductor manufacturers, Taiwan Semi, uh, TSMC, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Corporation, I think it, it stands for, announced big, big price rises for chips only last week. One of the newest sources of inflation, a topic we've covered on this podcast many times, but what we haven't seen before, what we haven't been discussing before, at least, are the big, big increases in energy prices. You'll be horrified to learn this week, Jim, that um, the UK has had to start up an old, ancient coal-fired power station that it's been holding in reserve, not using, because there isn't enough wind energy being produced because of the good weather. The price of gas has literally gone through the roof. And so it really is uneconomic at the moment to be generating as much power as usual from gas. It's much, much cheaper to do it from coal. And that environmentally, of course, is disastrous. And, and I'd be interested in your thoughts on that. So there's a lot of inflation out there. The headlines we've talked about in the past, there's clearly a lot of pipeline inflation coming through with these shortages. We're all going to be hit with much higher energy bills this winter. I think it's going to be scary for some people, the extent to which their home heating bills are going to go up. 
I don't know whether many people in Ireland are talking about that, but it's a big deal here. I've been written to by my energy supplier telling me about the quite chunky increases that are coming already next month. And if this continues, there, there's going to be more. The point about forecasting, of course, is that that may or may not last. Just as stagflation fears in the past or inflation fears or growth fears or put them two together to get stagflation, they come and go. And I do think that it's just as likely that this one will dissipate as, as in the past. But these, these factors that people are looking at are worth watching. The way in which economic forecasting is worth doing and does have some insight is when you can say, well, if this happens, then this is the outcome that's most likely. What is spectacularly useless is me saying to you, I think GDP will go up 6% next year. I mean, that kind of forecast is not worth the paper it's written on. But if I was to say to you, provided inflation, that stagflation thing, the inflation bit of it doesn't take off in the way that some people think, and provided COVID doesn't come back in a serious and material way, either via Delta, new variants or vaccine waning efficacy, all that sort of thing that we worry about. I think then making those forecasts based on those sorts of conditions, what we call conditional forecasting, makes an awful lot of sense. And I think you can say, provided COVID doesn't come and bite us on the ass again, and provided um, that inflation thing doesn't take off in a material sustained way, economic growth is going to be fine in Ireland and in most other developed countries and not so developed countries as well. But that that was essentially the, the tone of the piece. I know that you basically agree with me about forecasting, but in terms of the energy price thing. Has that landed in Ireland yet? We, we have seen significant consumer price inflation come through in the last 12 months and energy is one of the key components um, as it feeds through to home heating oil, which really w- will only hit in October, November. But um, it's, it's been evident we've seen uh, diesel, petrol at the petrol pumps uh, or fuel pumps increase quite significantly. So yeah, ener- energy is feeding into the system. There, there is no doubt about that. And I guess it's compounding a lot of other pressures there from the reopening of the economy uh, with restaurant prices and so on. And then, of course, the, the old, our old favourite, the building industry, we are seeing very significant inflation coming through there. Um, 12 months ago, we were starting to see massive increase in the price of lumber in the United States, for example. And um, we've seen that um, happening in this side of the world as well. Um, we're seeing serious labour shortages in the construction sector. And we're now back to the era of uh, begging tradesmen to come and do a job, regardless of how much they're going to charge. So there's definitely um, that sense of rising prices come into the system. But we're, we're not seeing... Um, that much uh, talk about it at this stage. I guess this will up a notch when the first energy bills start to arrive um, during the colder months of the autumn and winter. Um, you talk about the, the futility of economic forecasting. And um, in my moments of soul searching, of which I, I do quite a bit, unfortunately, I have often wondered about what we as professional economists um, actually contribute. You know, we, we both have worked in institutions where we've been producing regular economic forecasts. And um, I'm, I was always amused by, um, you know, coming out with a GDP forecast of 4.3%. And um, 
that was going that that sort of forecast will always get newspaper headlines. But I mean, that's yeah. the mystery, isn't it, Jim? Yes. Is that I, you and I can go on and on about you know don't bother why do you, why forecast? It's just a nonsense. These things are not worth the paper that they're written on. And as I say, nobody listens. And in particular. Um, the demand for forecasts is clearly there. People are always asking us, even when we say things like that. Okay, we we know what you know, we know what you think about forecasting, but what's your forecast? You know, our ability to persuade people is exactly nil, which which is somewhat humbling. Um, the curious thing is the extent to which people still demand forecasts and treat them very very seriously. I can understand why you need some assumptions rather than forecasts about what the future is going to look like for planning purposes, for budgeting purposes. All of these things need some kind of assumption about what the economic future holds. But there doesn't seem to be much scepticism, or at least any kind of scepticism that we express, reflected in the demands that we get for, for forecasts. People ask us to do it all the time, which is great, but it's a hell of a strange way to make a living, isn't it? Uh, yes, it is. Um, as you say, uh, there is a demand for it, and as I say, I often ask myself the question, what in the name of God we're at? But I, I guess it is, well, sorry, I don't guess, it is the case that it is important for businesses to understand what sort of economic environment they're going to be operating in. Um, it's vital for government to understand in terms of fiscal policy and health spending and so on, what sort of economic environment it's going to be operating in. So that there is definitely, you know, it, it does contribute something, but I, I still... I still laugh. There was a headline in the Irish Times in recent days about a stockbroking firm upping its economic growth forecast, and it makes massive headlines. That that always amuses me. And as I say, I have when I did a lot of trying to forecast the economy, um, I had a pretty unsophisticated model of sorts. But I cynically always had the view that. If you put a forecast at 4.1 or 4.2%, it looked much more credible than 4% or 4.5%, <laughs> you know? So, yes, I do know. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, we hopefully we make some contribution as economists to how business particularly plans and um, deals with unexpected events. I always think what's more important than preparing an economic forecast is to try and identify what the risks are, you know, if X were to happen what impact would that have on the economy and so on. Uh, you also, in the second piece, wrote about lying being at the heart Well, you were posing the question, is lying at the heart of all our ills? And I think, unfortunately, that sort of narrative from you is very heavily conditioned by, number one, the country in which you live and the prime minister that you enjoy or endure. And, of course, Trump over the period of his presidency um, lying became an art form and I, I suppose in the Irish parliamentary process at the moment um, you could certainly argue we're seeing a lot of lies being thrown about so uh, what point were you making? Well I was trying to make several points actually there, there's an article in the New York Times over the weekend written by a Harvard philosopher called Stephen Pinker in which he builds on a whole body of work that uh, he's produced in recent years saying that things ain't so bad and that things aren't as bad as the way they feel at the moment. A lot of people feel with from various sources, COVID, the environment, the economy, um, the, our, the state of our politics, as much as anything else, I suspect, has led, leads a lot of people to have very gloomy and depressing conversations. 
And as I say, Pinker wrote an article saying, actually, things, things aren't so bad. And we may or may not find that uh, credible. And I was positing the idea that one of the reasons why our politics is so bad is the extent of the lying. Of course, politicians have always lied, and we know that. And lying goes back to probably before we even the Greek, the ancient Greeks discovered democracy. But I do think that recent years has seen a, 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 an exponential, to use a trendy term, exponential increase in political lying on both sides of the Atlantic. As you say, Donald Trump's America and Boris Johnson's United Kingdom. And I included several examples of Johnson's lies over the last few years, uh, of which there are legion. There are many of them, and they're well documented. Others have compiled lists. That, that There's even a nice little video in my piece, which somebody else has compiled that has had over 30 million views. It's one of the most watched videos of all time, certainly in the field of politics. And Johnson's latest lie is a broken promise. That's a form of lie, isn't it? In which he was elected um, and he actually wrote to the British people with all sorts of written promises, one of which was not to raise taxes, VAT or national insurance. And this morning he raised national insurance. It's a broken electoral promise. Another promise that is rumoured quite strongly to be broken is something called the triple lock, which is the way in which old age pensions get uprated in this country. That is likely to be broken too, because it's going to be very expensive to, to index link pensions in the way that they promise. So that's two key conservative promises. Likely, one definitely is, one is likely to be broken. One of the cur curious aspects of this lie, Jim, is that I'm going to use a phrase that you haven't heard in, in the context of the Irish tax system for quite some time. But do you remember the health levy? I, I certainly do. Yeah, because that's what they've introduced here, is that they're putting national insurance up this year and next. And from 2023, it's going to be consolidated into something called, guess what? A health levy on all earned income. So they're borrowing from the Irish playbook of what? At least a decade ago, if not longer. It was rightly attacked as being a stupid way of raising money, a political gimmick. Uh, the need for raising taxes was always there, but to do it via these stupid levies was inefficient and certainly not the best way of doing it. And eventually Ireland consolidated all of these levies, because there was more than one, of course, into something called the universal social charge. But much hated, but Chris, sure, surely the the the, the levy that, that was introduced by Boris today is called the Health and Social Care Levy. Okay, that's yeah. the title it's given, the full title. And th 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 there is, well, to me, it strikes me that there's an element here of giving the people what they want because opinion polls in the UK recently have been showing that people would be prepared to pay higher taxes in return for better healthcare, the elimination or reduction in waiting lists and care for older people and so on. So you, you say he's breaking electoral promises at one level, but he also did make an election promise that he was going to increase um, social care spending. So he is going to do that in 2022 based on the measures that were introduced today. But no, the point I was really trying to make was um, if opinion polls are showing him that people want sorry, are prepared rather than want to pay higher taxes in return for better health and so on. The title matters, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Um, and and that, that's, why he, that's why he gets away with the lies, and, yeah. or at least gets away with this particular lie. It doesn't explain why he gets away with all of the lies. That, to me, is a bit of a mystery. And that was one of the things I raised in the article. 
which is why why is there no electoral cost to all the different lies that he tells, uh, all the lies about the Northern Ireland Protocol in the context of Brexit, all the Brexit lies that he told. I didn't mention Brexit once in the article because I and I suspect everybody else is so fed up with it. But I could I could have written an article about all the Brexit lies. Uh, it, it was sufficient to, to, you know, there are sufficient non-Brexit lies out there that one can write a, an article about political lying without even mentioning all the fibs that were told about Brexit. And so one of the key questions is, why do we allow our politicians to get away? And do we, indeed, we seem to reward them for it in the context of Trump potentially making a comeback, Johnson riding high, although not as high as he was in the opinion polls and certainly sitting on a massive House of Commons majority. And I think this, more than anything else, there are other factors, but this more than anything else is why the Chinese will consistently say these days that the Western system of government is decadent because provided, just as in Roman times, the people were satisfied with bread and circuses, feed them and give them entertainment in the Colosseum, they will vote for the Caligulas and the Neros of this world. And so it is today. The bread and circuses are bung people a few quid in one shape or, or another and entertain them because Boris is certainly that. He's, he's entertaining. There are lots of different aspects of the way in which the bread and circuses metaphor from ancient Rome, I think, applies today. The Chinese certainly think it does, is that the, the people have just been lulled into some kind of weird de- state of decadence and they say this is where Western politics leads you. This is where it, where it ends up. And this is what democracy will lead to, which is the lowest common political denominator. And, I, you know, I, I'm not saying for a second that I have much sympathy with the Chinese Communist Party about anything. But on this one, I'm just wondering out loud whether it's correct. And the decadence is something that bothers me. And related to that, something that I wanted to mention today but didn't cover in the article was last week's Economist the front page of which was warning about the perils of the illiberal left. Now, we've got to be very careful here, Jim. We might have to turn the comments off on this particular podcast because it involves talking about wokeism, I think it's called, and the way in which different aspects of our modern culture are turning the illiberal left, as the economists call them, as, as the kind of other side of the same coin of the totalitarian right in terms of their intolerance, in terms of how they see the truth, um, what they see as lies, what they see as the truth, and all that stuff. We know how um, some of this is is uh, manifesting itself. It started in universities with something called critical race theory. And the, the Economist, I'd urge anybody to read it, actually, if they can, you can probably sign up for it without uh, paying for it, I, I think. And they contrast their own position, which they would call classical liberalism, with this illiberal left, particularly this strain of thinking that's emerged from universities and is now starting to populate various big companies, big organizations. As The Economist says, superficially, the, the, the illiberal left and classical liberals want many of the same things. But where, where they disagree is how they bring them about, because classical liberals, we admit, and I would say describe myself as a classical liberal is is that most most of the time we know nothing which is why i did write that piece saying we know nothing and that so growth and progress comes from spontaneity and as the economist says and from the bottom up the liberal left and i'm quoting from the economist now put their own power at the center of things because they assure real progress is possible only after they have seen 
after they've first seen to it that racial, in particular, sexual and other hierarchies are dismantled. And that's where all the wokeism stuff comes in. The examples of which are legion. I mean, there's there's one I'll take from the FT of the, the other day who um, were looking at a online store offering from the city of my birth, actually, from Toronto. This particular food store was offering Good Food Box Friday. This food box, which contains things like radishes and lettuce and tomatoes and peppers and all the usual things that you expect from food box stores these days. It's, it's quite a thing getting these things delivered to your front door, at least here in the UK and in North America. And they, they, they called this dismantling white supremacy box. OK, so um, now let's not start laughing. We must take this very seriously. Otherwise, we will get, you know, we don't want to end up in the same place that J.K. Rowling has ended up in all sorts of social media trouble for expressing views about a different matter, but related matter. But this food box is so popular, it's sold out. Okay, so so what is a dismantling white supremacy food box? And I'm taking this from the FT, who was quoting the advertising blurb of this store in Toronto. Food justice underpins much of Food Share's work, and our food justice statement speaks of our work towards dismantling the systemic forms of oppression that exist in the food movement and beyond. From that understanding, the dismantling white supremacy box was designed. Black, indigenous and racialized communities experience higher rates of food insecurity in Toronto and remain underrepresented and undersupported in farming. That's why our dismantling white supremacy box is packed full of local organic produce grown by farms that are led, run or owned by racialized folks. Help us advance food justice by purchasing this box. Now, for our non-Canadian listeners... Racialized is a, is a very Canadian term that basically means, and it's a very Canadian definition, it's the word used to describe everyone who is non-white apart from the Aboriginal people of Canada. Um, the Economist doesn't understand that definition. I certainly don't as a Canadian-born citizen, um, but it is what it is. I want to say that we would all support efforts. I certainly, and I know you would too, Jim, support all efforts to deracialize everything. Nobody should be discriminated against. But going back to what The Economist says about how these new movements can lead to what, on the face of it, don't look to me like very practical efforts or reasonable efforts to deracialize our society. The way in which these people dictate modes, I'm not, this is moving on from Toronto now, I'm talking about going back to the Economist article. It's, it's very worrying. I got into an exchange with a very good Irish Times columnist, Mark Paul. We've mentioned him on this podcast once or twice before, and I know that uh, you, you think he's quite good as well, who said that he thought that this Economist article was exceptionally well written, and The Economist often is very well written, and making that point of the, the, the yin and the yang of our modern politics is the extreme totalitarian right and the, this new illiberal left. So within all of that, lying comes somewhere. Um, it's very much upon the, in Britain, I, I think, the, the right of, of politics. But the liberal left is something to worry about. And what it means, of course, it goes back to the old Yeats poem about the centre being eviscerated, the centre ground no longer holding. I think all of these things that, that one reads, hears and, and looks at, particularly political lying, says to me that we're in a lot of trouble. Because, you know, if all that if people believe, not without some justification, that all that we hear from experts, from politicians, from our leaders are lies, and it's 
easy to understand why a lot of people would say that. Where do you get your truth from? Where do you get the facts upon which to base your beliefs from? If you don't actually believe anybody that's saying stuff to you, where do you, Jim Power, get your beliefs and your facts from now in this world that is dominated by lying? Yeah, interesting question. You mentioned Steven Pinker. He wrote an article a few years ago called Enlightenment Now, and he made the case for reason, for science, for humanism and for progress. Okay, and um, I I suppose he he made the case for a lot of what I certainly would regard as truth. Okay. And um, the economist piece was 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 really interesting, as you say. I have always argued that the classic Irish liberal, and I guess you can you can spread this definition to many different countries, and they're liberals. But the classic Irish liberal is one that is open to all sorts of ideas, provided they agree with their own. And if they do not agree with their own views, then you end up with this calling out cancellation and no platforming, which is the favourite weapon of the uh, the illiberal left at this juncture. The economists also, uh, and, and it's, it's not having a go necessarily at the liberal left, it's having a go at the extremes, which I would always agree with, because I just think extremes in anything um, are rarely correct. But the economist says that in their different ways, both extremes put power before process, They put ends before means and the interests of the group before the freedom of the individual. And they quote um, something from a guy I read a lot over the years and that um, I admired in many ways. And I'll probably get cancelled for this as well. Milton Friedman. Um, Friedman once said that the society that puts equality before freedom will end up with neither. And I think that really does capture Uh, the nub of where we're at at the moment. Uh, I still haven't answered your question. Where do I go for the truth? Well, um, I I, I, I guess I still try and talk to people, I believe. I still try and read stuff that I, uh, publications that I actually respect. And I, you know, that's basically it. Um, And I, I don't get my truth from social media, certainly. You know, I try and go for what I would regard as respected sources. But it, it's a massive problem. And, and it's a problem that definitely is being accentuated by our political classes who are driven by this sort of agenda at this juncture. Um, I, would... I don't I don't have answers either. But yeah. there are two, two things COVID related that I'd just put out there that I think exemplify what we're talking about here, about the difficulty of getting to grips with all of this and why really there aren't any answers or any easy answers is that there have been several attempts by journalists and writers and researchers to ask people who who are dying of COVID, who um, have been public with their denial or vaccine uh, denying thing that they've refused to get the jab because they think it's a conspiracy because they think something that there's quite a few examples now of people on their deathbed having been told by their doctors that they're going to die of covid being asked well do you have any regrets have you changed your mind and the answer to both questions scarily is often no i haven't changed my mind and i've no regrets even though i'm dying 
Now, that's an extraordinary closely held belief, isn't it, in the face of quite a lot of evidence that you were wrong, but nevertheless not changing your mind. That's one of the things that leads me to say that we we live in scary times. But, but Chris, can I just say you're I, I I agree with you on that, but you passed a comment earlier in the podcast um, in relation to what Boris Johnson has done today, what he's announced in relation to increasing the <clears throat> national insurance contribution by one and a quarter percent, and and that was breaking an election promise. But you you didn't mention the fact that he had promised to increase. Um, social care spending, which okay. is... Okay. Sorry. So, may, so maybe the moral of this particular yeah. story is that don't make a, a conflicting set of promises that you don't stand any chance of being able to keep in the round. Maybe that's just normal political lying. In the in the bigger scheme of things, I think Johnson's national insurance lie isn't the biggest porky that he's ever told. It just happens to be the most recent example. The The other thing, as an economist that I'd say to you, and I think you would, you know this at least as well as I do, is that Yes, social care is a mess. It needs more money desperately, um, as does the NHS, as does, does the health service. But this is not the way, this is not the economically efficient way to raise the money. Because what he's doing is that he's uh, giving money via social care to the people that need it, who typically are Tory voters in that ageing demographic. Typically, on average, they do vote Tory and taking it from younger people via their national insurance contributions, because he's not making pensioners pay this. Um, he's only making people who, who actually pay national insurance. You don't pay national insurance on, on pensions. So people who don't benefit at the moment from all of this, he's taking money from Tory, he's taking money from non-Tory voters and giving it to Tory voters is, is a slightly oversimplified way of putting it, but that's why he's doing it. He's doing it for political gain. Um, if you think about the sums of money involved, I mean, the amount, it, it, if Boris Johnson announced that he's recommending Irish unification and he's getting out of the North, he would have saved the same amount of money from, from that he's gaining from this national insurance surcharge, almost exactly, actually. It's about nine billion, on my calculations, about eight or nine billion short of what he promised on the side of the red Brexit bust. You might remember that they said there would be 350 million a week to fund the NHS. Well, Where's that? Where's that money? As an aside, where is the British media outrage saying, you know, where is that money? Where is it? The other thing I say in my articles is that all of this conceals a bigger lie, particularly in the UK, which is the idea that you pay into this national insurance thing because it is a form of insurance and it goes into a fund and that there is a fund somewhere here with all this money saved up that when people become unemployed, sick or old, they get they are able to draw from this fund, which is complete nonsense. There is no fund. It just is. It, it's all. It's just another form of taxation, which is spent as quickly as it is paid. There's no, nothing. Nobody's paying into anything. So that when you hear on Joe Duffy Live about people paying into things, I paid into this all my life, and now it's my turn. Actually, the money ain't there. It's all coming out of current taxation. Is that, that that's pretty much true with PRSI, isn't it, Jim? Yeah, the PRSI in Ireland, um, most employers and employees between sixteen and sixty-six pay PRSI into the social insurance fund, and this social insurance fund it pays for social welfare benefits and pensions. Okay, every every few years, the Department of Social Protection hires an actuarial firm or one of the accounting firms to do an actuar an actuarial review of Ireland's social insurance fund. 
And the most recent one, which was published in 2017, relating to 2016, it looked forward to 2071, okay? And it looked at the demographics of Ireland, what the implications of that were for social insurance payments like pensions, um, other social payments. And it estimated that the net present value of future projected shortfalls is 335 billion over that period. Okay. So, so that, that's one element, but I, I think to call it a social insurance fund is wrong also in a sense that, you know, most years we would take in around 10 billion in PSI receipts, a little bit more now, but around 10 billion. And we would end up spending maybe 10.3 billion. So there's generally a small shortfall in the social insurance fund. But uh, th- there so is there's no, there's no great savings pot. No, which... no, there's, there's not, you see. That's the point. Mm. So point. another lie. It's another lie. A- absolutely. But in, in relation to another comment you made about um, Boris Johnson, and, and, and this is where I have some sympathy for the political classes and the, the lies, I suppose, they're forced to tell. Uh, Boris Johnson, um, there, it's rumours, hasn't been confirmed yet that the triple lock or the triple lock, excuse me, um, will be no more. And if you think about the triple lock, it was based on the premise that pensions would increase by the higher of consumer price inflation, average earnings growth, or 2.5%. Okay, that's a commitment that was made. I think it was Boris that made it originally. Okay, but if you look at this year, in the year to September, average earnings in the United Kingdom increased by 8.5%. So the notion that you would increase pensions by 8.5% um, is nuts. You know, it, it, it would be totally unaffordable. So I, I think what he's doing here in relation to the triple lock is actually pragmatic. It's sensible, okay? And it is changing a policy based on changed circumstances. And I think that f- type of flexibility is actually required in policy-making circles. Well, I will reveal my political inflexibility and bias and bigotry, and I will never concede that Boris Johnson is doing anything sensible. You will never find those words coming out of my mouth, I can assure you, even though I might think it. Uh, We should probably call it there, Jim, unless you've got anything massively pressing you want to add. Uh, No, nothing else to add. All right. Good good conversation, and um, see you again soon. Absolutely. look forward to it. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and other good podcast platforms. Hey, welcome to the Next Wave Podcast. Consider us your chief AI officer in your business. My name is Matt Wolf. I have the number one YouTube channel in the AI space. I also run futuretools.com and I'm joined by my co-host, Nathan Lands, founder of lore.com. We want to bring you the latest AI news and trends, show you how you can use AI in your business and personal life and help make it super easy for you to understand and execute. We're going to equip you with the knowledge to thrive in this upcoming wave of change. 